If you've seen scenes in Curb Your Enthusiasm between Larry David and Leon, played by the one and only J.B. Smoove, or if you haven't, please go to YouTube and watch any of their scenes. And in either case, if you don't happen to laugh out loud, please email me at james at jamesandrewmiller.com and try to explain how you avoided doing so. I'm serious about this. I will be fascinated to understand. Oh, man, it's, it's such a crazy, crazy ride, man. You know, I was a big Kirby Enthusiasm fan when I worked for Saturday Night Live. Everybody loved the show. We would come in on right days and spend like the first 15 minutes talking about Curb last night, you know. And then um, I was watching uh, Curb one day, you know, in our Jersey apartment. My fiance, who's not my wife, and she was washing dishes. I remember distinctly because we had just had um, something I call hot dog soup. <laughs> hot dog soup is our version of Beans Franks. Always had it with Pillsbury biscuits. She was washing the dishes in the sink. She's a hands-on kind of girl. So she's washing the dishes. I'm watching Curb. And I said to myself, I said, baby, I love this damn show so much. I love this dude, Larry David. I would love to be on this show one day. And my wife said, you know what? You're going to be on that show one day. It couldn't have been mine. You know why? Because I get mine, Larry. I bring the ruckus to the ladies. Okay, so you're, you're denying this. Is that it? First of all, look around this place, man. Is there any visuals around here to jack off to? All we have is basic cable, right? What am I doing, jacking off the Andy Gripper? Less than a month later, right, I was up for a renewal at SNL, and I didn't get renewed, right? So I said, oh, man, I didn't get renewed, you know? So now, you know, I ended up, you know, saying, okay, what's next for me? You know, I met with a new agent in New York who also had offices in L.A., so I met with those guys. I ended up signing with a new agent. I ended up going on the road, and then all this happens within a month or two. My buddy passes away in L.A., right? My um, buddy's name is O.G. Pierce. He actually produced a song, This Is How We Do It. I'm in the hotel room. I'm going to get a phone call from a friend of his saying that he passed away. I'm like, what? You know, wow. You know, and O.G. was one of my good friends, and he also was a huge fan and a good friend. So I had to go to L.A. for one day, almost like a day fly in, go to his memorial service, which was a jam session at a club in L.A., and then while I was in town, I said, you know what? I'm going to go and say hi to my new agents while I'm in town. So I'm only in town one day. I go to my, see my new agents. They bring in like, you know, four or five people to meet me from different departments. So I'm sitting there in a the little office, and then we're talking about what I want to do next, you know. And then a agent walks in late. He says, you know, sorry, I'm late, JB, you know, da-da. I was just on the phone with some folks just tying up a last-minute phone call. And he said, how long are you in town? I said, I, mean, I only came in town because my buddy passed away and I wanted to show my respects. He said, well, I have an audition here. I said, what's it for? He said, for Kirby Enthusiasm. I said, what? <laughs> I said, man, I love Kirby Enthusiasm. I'm a big fan of the show, man. I said, I love Kirby Enthusiasm. He said, when you leaving town? I said, I'm leaving town in the morning. He said, can you go right now? I said, man, I can go right now. So I literally came in town. My buddy's memorial service that night, that morning, went to my agent, say hi to them before I was leaving town. They said, you know, can you go over to this audition? I grabbed the paper. I go over to the audition. It was three items on the list of different things to talk about. You know, I'm sitting in the, I'm waiting in the waiting room. There's tons of actors and comedians who I knew who were also going in for the role. And I read the sides. I said, oh, I know who this guy is. I know exactly who Leon is. Everybody knows Leon. So I have this thing I do. I like to walk into my auditions, and I tell all actors to do this. I never walk into an audition as myself. I always walk in there as the character. 
as one portraying. So they can see how I walk, how I move, how I say hello, how I start the audition. Everything is under the character as opposed to JB going in the room and turning JB on and then doing a character. You know what I mean? It's just different. Were you in the room? Yes, I was. He was so funny. He came in with his character of Leon just fully formed. So I go in there as Leon. I walk in the door. It's okay, JB. You're going to improv with Larry directly. And I had no idea I was going to be improv with Larry directly. Larry's standing in the middle of the room. I thought I was going to go on tape. You know how they put you on tape. They review the tape. You know, you actually improv directly with Larry. I had no idea. So Larry's standing in the middle of the room, and this is exactly what I said to Larry verbatim. They said, you're going to improv with Larry. So I walk up to Larry as Leon. I said, okay, Larry, let's do this, baby. You know, this is improv, right? I said, okay, let's improv. I said, since this is improv, I said, I don't know, Larry. I might fuck around and slap you in the face. And that's exactly what I said to him. And Larry looked at everybody else like, what the, who the hell is this guy? He looked at me like I was crazy. And we started the audition. We laughed our asses off. We had a great time. At one point, I remember Larry walking away and walking into a corner and getting his composure and coming back. We had absolutely the best time. What kind of stain was it? Ejaculate. Ejaculate. <laughs> that's, that's what I'm hearing. I'm hearing ejaculate. <laughs> Larry was laughing all through it. I mean, Larry couldn't control himself. This guy was so funny in the way he'd look at Larry quizzically. Like he was wondering what the hell Larry was talking about. And, you know, Larry is just famous for breaking up. I mean, there, there are times that we went over schedule during any given day just because we had to make time for Larry to, you know, control himself and maintain himself. And it was sometimes really difficult. I mean, there would be a 10-minute stretch in which Larry just could not get through a scene. And occasionally that happens during an audition. And the audition for JB was like that because JB was just so funny. I leave the audition. I'm driving back to my hotel to get my luggage. And my agent calls me to how did it go. I said, you know what, man? So we had a great time. I said, if anybody else gets that role, God bless them. But I'll tell you one thing, I had a good time. And then uh, I had to leave directly from L.A. and go straight to a comedy show in Pittsburgh. It was one of those auditions where we looked at each other and said, all right, well, we've got early on. <laughs> There's no point in even looking at anyone else. He was just so funny. It was just one of those things where we all looked at each other and just laughed and said, that's our guy. So I'm leaving sunny L.A. It's beautiful. I get on the plane. I go to Pittsburgh. I land there. It might have been 10 below. It's freezing. So I'm going to this comedy club, which is an hour and a half outside of Pittsburgh. So I rent a car. I start driving an hour and a half, two hours outside of Pittsburgh to do this one little comedy club for a Friday and a Saturday. I get there. This must have been the most horrible hotel I've ever stayed in in my life. Have you ever been in a hotel where you want you don't want to get undressed? Like I didn't want to get undressed. I was sleepy before the show. I laid on the bed in my clothes and my coat, man. It was cold in the room. I said, "This is terrible." I said, "I've never been in a comedy club this horrible in my life." The comedy club was terrible. The hotel was horrible. I did the show. The guy told me to keep it clean, so I do the show. I get off the stage. The dude runs up to me. Hey, man, I told you to keep it clean. I said, man, I didn't do any dirty material. He said, you profanity. I said, man, there are people in here drinking beer, alcohol, smoking cigarettes. This is the most horrible comedy club I've ever been in my life. How could you not curse in this comedy club? I said, this is horrible. You can't curse? Wow. So he said, you know what, man? I said, that's my act, brother. That's it. That's what I do. And he said, you know what, maybe it's going to work out. I said, all right, man, if this ain't going to work out, he said, I'll just get a local guy from Pittsburgh to come on up that I know. He said, I'll pay you for the night, and uh, I'll get you another time. I said, all right, man. I go back to the hotel. I grab my luggage, man. I get back in the car. 
I said, man, I'm going to leave tonight because I'm an East Coast guy. I said, I don't trust the weather. I drove two hours to get here. At any point in the middle of winter, it could be a storm. So I just started driving back. Man, 15 minutes into my ride, a flurry here, a flurry there, a flurry here. Then all of a sudden, it started a blizzard, a straight blizzard a half an hour into my ride to the airport. I mean, so bad I couldn't see the road. I'm going 10 miles an hour on the highway. I'm creeping. People are pulling over. Man, I call my wife. I said, baby, I'm, t- I'm going 10 miles an hour to get back to the airport. I'll call you when I get there. Then I'm driving about an hour into my trip. My agent calls me. I'm thinking he's calling me about the comedy club, how horrible it was. And the guy called him and told me he canceled me. So I answered the phone. I said, man, I'm so sorry, man. Me and that guy got into it. You know, it was a terrible comedy club, terrible hotel. I said, this is horrible. I said, I'm doing 10 miles an hour in a blizzard right now. I said, I'm trying to make it back to the airport, you know, so I can fly back out in the morning. He said, man, look, he said, cut it down to five miles an hour. Take your time. Get back to the hotel. Relax. Let me tell you what happened. You got curvy enthusiasm. I said, what? Are you fucking kidding me, man? He said, no, they fucking loved you. You got curvy enthusiasm. I said, this is fucking crazy. So I said, I guess you got to go down before you go up. It's darkest before dawn. It's always like that. I called my wife. I said, baby, guess what happened? I had curvy enthusiasm. She said, oh, my God. Oh, my God. I told you. I fucking knew it. I fucking knew it. Oh, my God. So I get back to the hotel. I call her. I tell her what's going on. They needed me to come straight back to L.A. So I went straight back to L.A. to shoot. There's no telling at that time that he would be such a popular character on the show that he would just be kept, you know, long after the story of the black family living in the house was gone and Vivica Fox and everybody else left. There was no knowing at that time that Leon would stay on because, I mean, there's just nothing funnier than Leon and Larry together. So you just knew during that audition that scenes with Larry and Leon were going to be something very special. What? I did that? Yes, you kept crazy? Huh? Exactly. Right? Who the fuck is this? Who's this? That's uh, Leon, Loretta's brother. What's up? What's up? What's up? What's up? Mm. I'll tell you one thing. A lucky woman with a smart-ass mouth like that. Yeah, well, fuck you too. Mm. I went straight back to L.A. to shoot. Shot two episodes, right? The first day on the job, me and Larry, we had so much goddamn fun. And this was the stained blanket episode. So we did that episode, right? You know, in between scenes, you know, me and Larry was just sitting in our, you know, director chairs talking. He said, man, this is fun. He said, it feels as though we've been working together for years. I said, isn't that weird how things work, Larry? I said, Sometimes the, these two cosmic things meet somewhere in the universe, and shit happened the way shit supposed to happen. We talked about who Susie Green is, and I'd like to go a little bit deeper and ask you where she came from, because people who know you don't see a lot of similarities. You know, it was a process, and I don't think I fully found her until season two. I mean, I had that scene in season one where, you know, I created this crazy screaming and yelling woman. But there was a few things. Number one, I never want to play myself. I'm with myself 24-7. It's not that interesting to me. (laughs) I always want to play somebody different than me, you know. And I'm not the kind of actress that gives it that much thought. It's more of a visceral, emotional connection that I get. And I just had this idea of this character. Well, first of all, the house, you know, we've had so many houses, Jeff and I, as has Larry, but the house that we had the first season... The way that it was decorated, it was this very modern house with this very kind of leather and chrome kind of a look. And the way that it was decorated just gave me this idea in my head about who she was. So that was just happenstance. And how she dressed was a big part of that. You know, I just got this idea of how she dresses and how she decorates. And that I wanted her to be this kind of character that is completely reactive 
you know, doesn't analyze anything the way that I do personally. You know, I analyze every, I'm a comic. You know, I look at everything from every which way that I possibly can, and I'm always overanalyzing. And Susie Green's completely reactive. She has an emotion. She always believes she's completely right. She never second guesses herself. It's just that she just started to develop in my head from different women I've known throughout my life that I've thought, wow, wouldn't it be great to just be that secure and sure of yourself and your opinions that you never, ever have any guilt or question anything? Let me tell you something. We get a divorce. 50-50, 50-50, you take whatever 50% you want, I'll take what's left. No, no arguing, no negativity. What are you fucking kidding me? You think we're going to have a nice divorce if we ever get divorced? No fucking way. I'm taking you for everything you have, mister. I'm taking your balls and I'm thumbtacking them to the wall. You're going to get nothing out of it. You mentioned the D word once in your fucking life till the day you ever met me. There were girls that I knew in high school that were like that. And I was always like, wow, what is that like to be that way? You know, because I was the opposite. I was always, you know, every little thing was 10,000 different analytic questions in my head. And then the way that she dressed, I just had this idea that I wanted her to dress in this completely outrageous way, but completely secure in it. She's totally secure that she has the greatest taste in the whole world. And I thought she would dress kind of like the Russian immigrant women in Brighton Beach in Brooklyn. (laughs) You you know that look? And I remember our wardrobe designer, the first season, Wendy, she said, well, where am I going to find clothes like that? Because I had this idea. And I said, the back room at Lowman's. And she had never even heard of Lowman's. So we did a field trip. Do I look like a fucking idiot that I'm going to believe you? You got her drunk and you stole the fucking dog, all right? No, she she told me I could have the dog. She told you you could take the dog after you got her all fucked up on alcohol, all liquored up. I thought she had a speech impediment. My relationship with Larry just kind of developed because he'd write all these scenes where I'm kicking him out of the house and I hate him and I'm yelling and screaming at him. And then the next episode, I'd be, hey, Larry, want to come to dinner? So we kind of developed this... Almost like siblings, where you always forgive. And Susie, by the way, is is very loyal even to Larry, even though he's always pushing her buttons. She still she would still defend Larry to the death. David Letterman regularly featured Super Dave Osborne as a guest on his show in the '90s, and those appearances were almost always an event. Super Dave was played by Bob Einstein, a quirky but unbelievably funny comedian who had been a writer and performer on the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour, and with huge comedic strands of DNA. His father had been Harry Einstein, widely known as Park Your Carcass, on the much-admired Fred Allen radio show. And his brother is the very independent filmmaker and actor Albert Brooks. As it happens, Bob Einstein was also a good friend of LD's. We played golf, and we had fun. We were laughing. So he said, I got this character. I'd love you to play it. And so I came in, and it just started to work. Again, it's such a fun cast, and... I think we all like each other. You have to, or you can't ad-lib. I mean, if you're ad-libbing with someone you can't stand, it, it gets tough. Jogging is the best thing for me. So mourners, mourners exercise. I didn't know I, that. I don't know if mourners exercise. It's just good for me. Interesting. I'm going to remember that next time I lose a close member of my family. Yeah. My whole life, I, I did a character called Super Dave, and that was all ad-lib. When you do comedy like that, it's so much more fun. And I don't rehearse because I feel that for you rehearse, you're going to be thinking about the line that you're going to do. I hate pontificating about how we create things. We're just so lucky. But it just developed. And my relationship with Larry 
developed, and it was very different from the other characters. I had some things happen to me that were amazing. My father dies, and he opens a casket because he buried his five wood in there, and then my mother dies, and the place where she was hit in her wheelchair became a monument there, and they put flowers on it, and Larry stopped and stole the flowers and gave them to his wife so he could fuck her. Did you take the flowers at my mother's site? What? What? They wouldn't take the 50 at the flower store. How could you do that? Why, there's so yeah. many of them. I didn't know it was such so a bad... So many of them? Is that such They're a bad not there thing? to pick? You took flowers from Marty's oh, mother? Well, not a graveyard. It's a roadside memorial. It's not such a... Come on. How could you do this? And you know what? I am missing one. Where's the third bunch? There uh, were three bouquets. Uh, uh, I know where it is. He will get you that bouquet. I feel sorry for you. My daughter was a lesbian who went straight, and Larry turned her back into a lesbian. Jeff fucked my mentally ill sister. <laughs> and uh, this year, something else happens, which I can't tell you. So that's how the relationship built, and it was very different from the other characters. For Jeff to fuck my lunatic sister is just, it's impossible. Then again, if you're watching Curb and looking to feel comfortable, you've wandered into the wrong show. It's as if Larry David has invented a new genre that could be called cringe comedy. You know, when people told me after the uh, show started airing that they had to leave the room for some scenes because they were cringing <laughs> and they couldn't bear to watch it like it was a horror movie, <laughs> I had no idea it was having that effect on people. That was a complete surprise to me, and, and I liked it. I liked that they couldn't see it. But, um, you know, I never really gave it that much thought. I was just trying to uh, do funny shows. I never felt I was going too far. I felt I was doing what I wanted to see. And so if I wanted to see it, my thinking was that maybe, you know, other people wanted to see that too. And if I felt it was too far, then I didn't want to see it. So, I mean, I do have limits. <laughs> How does that happen to you? You know, she went over the appropriate amount of time that I can have human contact without getting aroused. I only have five seconds. After that, it's out of my control. Not me. I've got discipline down there. I have a very discerning penis. No. Very discerning. My penis is an animal. Really? Just out of control? It's a feral it's wild. tiger. Yeah. I heard that once you decided to go to a series, it was important for you to both be on location and shoot chronologically. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, that's what we tried to do the first couple of seasons. That's what we did in the special. Because when we improvised it, it was changing the story as we went along. So it was important that we shoot in order. The stories were a little looser then especially for the special, because we also had the stand-up to deal with in that episode. I mean, it is better if you shoot chronologically, but you can't. It's too expensive. Sometimes you have to go back to the same location a couple of times, so you don't want to pay for it every single time you go back. Larry Charles has directed more than a dozen episodes of Curb. I think one of the uh, misconceptions about something like Curb is that it was just a free-for-all. And we would just, like, the actors would get in front of the camera and the director would be behind the camera and we would just say action and people would just improvise the scene. But that wasn't the way it was at all. Larry David is a writer and a structuralist, a very disciplined structuralist. So the outlines for Curb were very, very specific. There was a sense of exactly where the scene had to go to nail the scene. Like certain points had to be made, occasionally even a line that had to be said. So we kind of knew where we were heading. And then the shooting of the scenes became kind of like the rewrites. 
you would do a version of the scene, you know, certain things were missed or certain dynamics were not achieved. You would try to make adjustments to that and do that scene again. And within, because everybody was so skilled, within four or five takes, you had this kind of heightened, funniest version of the scene. Both Larry and I, as writers, were very, very conscious of that structure, you know, and, and maintaining that structure, even though part of the joy of doing something like Curb is the surprise and the discovery of not knowing what's going to happen and somebody coming up with something that is just golden that could never have been written, you know, and that happens just all the time, which was fantastic. Here's Bob Whitey, one of Larry's key lieutenants on Curb. Let's not forget, Larry really doesn't have improv training. I mean, not in any meaningful way. And we actually did have actors on the show without improv training who did great, who were fearful going in that they would screw up, but did a fine job and then came out loving the experience. And, and that includes Ted Danson and Mary Steenburgen. I seem to recall the two of them being very nervous about their first day. And how do you do this without a script? And it's like, you're going to be fine. You're going to be fine. And they were fine. They were great. And then afterwards, I seem to recall them saying, wow, who needs a script? We never want to work with the script again. This is the way to go. They had a great time. Basically, the way the show was made was the actors were not given the outline. They literally would be in the makeup trailer getting made up for the scene, not knowing what was going to happen. Now, what I would always do is I would take you know a couple minutes and go in and welcome them and make sure that they were comfortable and tell them basically what we were going to do. I mean, tell them basically what the scene was. And I'd also give them a bit of a pep talk, say, I know this seems crazy that you're about to go on camera, you have no idea what's going on, but believe me, it's going to be a breeze, you're going to have a great time, we're going to give you notes in between the takes, we're going to shoot it several times until we know we've got it, then we make everybody look great in the editing room, nobody comes off looking bad on this show. And then you can see the whole body English starts to change as they physically start to relax and get less nervous. What are you wearing? What, I'm wearing shorts. That's disgusting. I worked on shorts. I'm sorry. You know something? You really disappointed me last night. That sweet guy trying to sing his song, you absolutely destroyed his confidence. You know that? He can't sing anymore because of you. Well, I'll, I'll uh, you know, I'll, I'll talk to him. Talk to I him. Will, yeah, I will. Build up his confidence after that. I actually will. I'll you do are that. a selfish motherfucker. I'm selfish you motherfucker. Are. I buy you a fantastic gift and you take Jeff Green? That's $150. So That's what? That's my $150. Yeah. At least I gave you a present. I didn't have my yeah, daughter sing some bucks. bullshit you know, song and not even able to carry a tune. Some, some fucking pants. These days, you can get practically everything on demand, right? Like our podcast. You can listen whenever you want whenever it's convenient for you. So why are you still going to the post office, waiting online and dealing with their limited hours when you can get postage on demand with stamps.com? You know that feeling you get when you get things done with just a click of your mouse? It can't get more convenient than that, thanks to stamps.com. Look, anything you can do at the post office, you can now do right from your home with stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package using your own computer and printer. And unlike the post office, Stamps.com never closes, so you can get postage whenever you need it, 24-7. Right now, for our listeners, sign up for Stamps.com and use our promo code ORIGINS for this special offer, a four-week trial including postage and a digital scale. Don't wait. Within minutes, you'll be printing postage right from your desk. Go to Stamps.com, and before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in ORIGINS. Don't forget, it's the little microphone at the top of the screen. That's stamps.com. Enter Origins. You'll never have to go to the post office again. 
After I got my great new parachute sheets, I decided to do a little digging into the company. Turns out, Parachute's founder, Ariel Kay, made it her mission to create the best sheets on the market after a trip to Italy, where she discovered the softest, most comfortable bedding in her hotel. When shopping for sheets later on, she just couldn't find anything like those beautiful linens she experienced in Europe. And that's when she launched Parachute. Now, these aren't just any sheets. Parachute makes luxury bedding at an affordable price, and they travel the world to find the best factories to make their products. Parachute's bedding is crafted in a family-owned factory in northern Portugal. Their towels in Turkey, and their pillows and duvets in Cincinnati, Ohio. I have a set of sheets and towels, so I can tell you they really do live up to the hype. Try them for yourself. Parachute is so sure you'll love their sheets, they're offering a 60-night trial. So if you don't love them, just send them back. No questions asked. Visit parachutehome.com origins now for free shipping and returns on Parachute's amazing bedding. That's parachutehome.com origins. Ted is anonymous. What are you, kidding? No. Isn't that great? He donated the whole wing. Didn't want anybody to know. Well, he told you. So he apparently wanted somebody to know. He told me, okay? Who else did he tell? How do you know he just told you? No. The point is that he didn't need all the fanfare and didn't need a... Fanfare? What fanfare? I don't like the fanfare. Are you saying I like fanfare? You can tell a few people. He just doesn't need the whole world to know that he donated all this oh, money. You know what? I didn't need the world to know either. Nobody told me that I could be anonymous and tell people. I would have taken that option, okay? Well, I'm working with one of the biggest comedy geniuses in the world, you know? So here I am, I'm working with Larry David, and I watch him work, and I... It has always made me feel like if I did something that wasn't on the right track, he would be the first to let me know. (laughs) But like I said, I mean, you know, I'm in scenes with Larry, and he... If you're listening, you know what to do. (laughs) Because he's guiding. He's driving all the scenes, and he's driving the show. Why would you even comment about her ass? Why? What's the big deal? Because he might as well just call out and say, hey, you've got a really big ass. It's the same thing. Uh, It was just a friendly remark. That's all. That's a friendly remark? Yeah, I was just being nice. When you're improvising, you don't really have the luxury to critique as you go. Because... You only have the moment that's being created, so you don't even have a chance to say, well, Cheryl Hines wouldn't say this, but Cheryl David would say this. You don't have that time, so you have to, before the the scene starts or before you go into work, you have to, you know, take a moment and think about Cheryl David and who Larry is to her, and, and then so everything you do that day comes from that point of view. Early on in Curb, you were consulting producer. Yeah. So what is that, for people out there who... Uh, don't know what that means. Well, in my particular case, it was sounding board. We shared offices. Larry would come in, and he'd lie on the couch, and he would tell me about what he was thinking of doing for any particular episode. He would bounce the ideas off of me. I would say, well, what if? Maybe throw in an idea or two. And he'd go, I'll think about it. (laughs) He'd leave, all right? So I was there to consult. I was there as a sounding board. I was there to take his ideas and try to embellish or maybe, uh, oh, you can also go down this road. But it was suggestive. I don't ask him much about his career. We're just best friends. You know, we like to talk about other things, politics and sports. And, you know, we talk about other friends, mutual friends. That's one thing. But I try to stay clear of the show, certainly of Curb, because, you know, you can get lost in a bubble out here and, 
it's all about the art for Larry, and, and for, quite frankly, we're very similar. We have some similar backgrounds with family. To this day, I write notes down since I'm 20 years old, you know, premises that I could use on stage. He did the same thing as a comic, and then ultimately he would use these notes. And I think Woody does the same thing from what I read and saw. One of the things that I sort of resented about the show was that the actors who were on the show, they would come in and work for a few weeks or a couple months or whatever it was, and then they could go off and do other gigs. And people would say to me, so what are you off to? I'd say, what am I off to? I'm going to be in the editing room for the next seven months. What do you mean, what am I off to? <laughs> and um, so the show was most of the calendar year for me. Next to Larry, I was, you know, first one in, last one out, because we spent so much time in the editing room. And by the way, with a scripted show, you have your guide. And, oh, this is this guy's best take for this line, and this is her best take for this line, and take three works good for this part of it or whatever. But here, on top of all of the conventional considerations that go into editing, you've got, well, do we want to go with the take where Larry apologizes to the guy, or should we go with the take where Larry storms off? Was the editing room a democracy? I mean, did you and Larry decide together? Was he... You know, as specific a comic vision as he has, and as sure of himself as he is in many ways, he's actually a very good collaborator. And he's very open input. And because he is a performer and a comedian, of course, he is full of self-doubt, too. So he's always worried about whether something works or not and is very covetous of your input in the process. So now it wouldn't be a room full of people. It would be just Larry and myself and the editor. And I took an improv class at the Improv Comedy Club in New York City. This is how crazy it is. That was the last improv class they ever had there. That summer... I took an improv class, put that tool in my toolbox, and that club, that whole club shut down months later. The whole club went out of business. So I was one of the last people to take an improv class at the Improv Comedy Club in New York City. Hey, when you were on Saturday Night Live, was there a part of you that was frustrated that you weren't part of the cast? Oh, of course, because I went for cast initially. You know, I was one of the last three people. It was Finesse Mitchell, it was Keenan Thompson, and myself were the last three people. You know, I didn't get it, but it was all good, you know. Of course I was frustrated. You know, it's one of those things, you know what, not frustrated, because I, I also believe that, you know, things come within time. So for me, it worked out great for me because I got a chance to be in monologues. I got a chance to be in sketches. I had a chance to write on the show. I did warm up on the show for two seasons. And I also did Colin O'Brien uh, when he was still at NBC. I was on camera with him doing sketches. I must have did 10, 11 sketches for Conan O'Brien's show. So you got to realize, let's count these checks. That's a check for writing on the show, a check for doing warm-up on the show, a check for being in sketches, in monologues, a check for doing Conan O'Brien. So that's what it's like. That's four checks additional on top of my writing check, which was fine to me. So for me, it wasn't a big deal. Of course, I would love to have got more stuff on air, of course. And of course, who wouldn't want to be a cast member? You know, I think I could have brought something very valuable to the show, but, you know, my guys made it, and I was happy for them. And I got a chance to write for them and write for a bunch of amazing people. And SNL looks great on your resume. This Cheryl thing got him twisted, man, for real. He, he's a bit Moby, man. Moby Dick. That's what he is. Moby Dick. No, Moby Dick. No, no, it's called Moby Dick. Who fucking Moby Dick? Moby Dick's the book by Melville. Fucking Where are you getting Moby Dick from? Moby Dick, man. Oh, yeah, his dick is moping. Oh, literally Moby Dick. Yeah, Moby okay. Dick. Squarespace isn't your typical startup story. 
Normally, the Tech Founders Playbook reads like this. First, identify marketplace needs. Second, create a basic viable product. Third, raise lots of venture capital. But that wasn't the path that Squarespace took. Squarespace's founder, Anthony Casalena, raised $30,000 from his father. He spent $20,000 on servers, which he installed himself, and then he spent $2,000 designing a logo. In year one, he made about $50,000. In year two, revenue climbed to $250,000. In the early years, he was still doing most of the work himself, including answering tens of thousands of customer inquiries. In year three, he finally hired a contractor. By 2010, there were about 30 employees and Casalina was rebuffing investment offers. In year seven, Squarespace took in its first round of investments, setting the stage for the company that we know today. How did Casalina know when it was time to make that move? It was simple. When customer care needed more care, that's when he knew he needed to make his move. So when it's time to make your next move, use Squarespace. Use offer code ORIGINS for 10% off your first purchase of a website and domain. Again, that's offer code ORIGINS. Make your next move with Squarespace. Look, I'm saying we spent 42 days trying to survive. We had very little rations, no snacks. Snacks? We're talking snacks. We didn't eat sometimes for a week, for a month. We ate nothing. I went from home. I mean, I couldn't even work out when I was over there. They certainly didn't have a gym. What? I mean, I wore my sneakers out, and then the next thing you know, I've got a pair of flip-flops. Flip-flops? We slip on the ground, on the dirt. Once again, Larry Charles. Is there a scene in one of those episodes that you could take us inside of? Not necessarily an outlier, but something that you remember because... It was either so funny or so great, or it enabled you to do something that, you know, you really wanted to do. Well, the episode that pops into my mind when you ask that question is an episode called The Survivor, where we had a Holocaust survivor and we had a contestant from the Survivor TV show. And this is, part of, to me, again, a great illustration of Larry's genius. Like, even looking back at the contest, he's able to take the darkest subjects you could imagine, the most uncomedic subjects you could imagine, and just by angling it slightly differently, finding a way into those subjects that was funny and not offensive. In a weird way, he'd be able to deal with something like the Holocaust. And if I'm not mistaken, there's a a 9-11 storyline in there, too, about the rabbi whose brother died on 9-11, but it turns out he was actually run over by a bicycle uptown on 9-11 but had nothing to do with actual 9-11 event. Again, behind the camera, I'm enjoying that as much as the audience is, which is a good signal for me that I'm actually having glee at that moment. So that scene and the scene at the dinner table when the Holocaust survivor and the survivor contestant get into the argument about who suffered more, I just remember thinking, God, I'm in a world here that nobody else is in. You know, this is, uh, we're dealing with subject matter and comedy that is untouched by anyone ever. And I was amazed. So I thought this is very, very special. This is unique. Nobody, this is only could be done on curb. And that's kind of like another criteria that Larry set up that I have followed through my life. If it could be done somewhere else, we shouldn't be doing it on curb. And that's pretty much the criteria that led to so many incredible stories and funny moments, you know. When you wake up in the morning and you're going to the set of Curb and you're thinking about your day ahead, are you processing potential things in your mind? You know, no. The only scene that I think I ever pre-planned what I was going to say, and there was a reason for that, was the restaurant opening, you know, where everybody's cursing and Paul Sand plays the Tourette's (laughs) chef. 
And I walk in while they're all in the middle of, you know, all this crazy cursing. And, and Cheryl says something, you know, goddamn son of a bitch, something like that. And I think she's talking to me. So I actually plan my response, where, which is one of my most famous quotes. Fuck you, you car wash cunt. I had a dental appointment. <laughs> you goddamn motherfucking bitch. Fuck you, you car wash cunt. I had a dental appointment. But I actually pre-planned that because I knew I was just walking. It wasn't like a usual scene. I knew I was walking in, saying something, and leaving. Right. It wasn't like a normal scene where you're listening and talking. And I knew that Cheryl was going to say ahead of time, right. more or less. I knew that she was just going to be cursing, and I was going to think it was at me. I didn't know exactly what she was going to say. You know. So that was one of the more planned moments. But I think that's the only time I've ever pre-planned what I'm going to say. You know, Larry generally doesn't let any of the guest stars or anybody read the outlines for that very reason. He doesn't want them pre-planning because then it sounds like bad sitcom lines. So we did our whole season. This is the craziest, most eeriest part of the whole shit. Did our whole season of Kirby Enthusiasm, right? We get to the rap party. Now, the rap party has this thing called the gag reel, blooper reel. You know, it's just a video of all the great moments of the season, all the crew, personal photos, cool stuff to remind everybody how great the season was. And, you know, they put the gag reel on, right? Throughout the season, my whole, I would say, that's how I do it. You know, because my buddy, you know, he passed away. So I used that's how I do it, right? Because he did the song, this is how I do it. So we get to the freaking gag reel. Me and Larry's in the first scene on the gag reel, and the theme song to the gag reel was This Is How We Do It by oh Montel God. Jordan, produced by my friend O.G. Pierce. My yeah. wife and I looked at each other like, holy shit. All I could do was look at her, man, and a chill went up our spines, man. We were like, holy shit. That's O.G. saying hello. And I just pointed to the sky, man. I said, wow. All that being said, that's a long way to go. But all that being said is, man, the universe sometimes works in mysterious ways, man. We have no idea what the hell we're getting ourselves into. But sometimes it's a good trip and a good road. It's the main thing that you recognize, these amazing moments and these blessings. And uh, it's crazy, man, that, uh, you know, that song came all the way back. I guess it's predestined. That's crazy. But predestined is not a word that fits for much of what happens on Curb. Ted Danson will explain his take on that in our next episode. Calling all pop culture enthusiasts. Are you obsessed with all things celebrity? Do you live for the drama, the laughs, and the unexpected moments that unfold on social media? Then you're going to want to tune in to the Comments by Celebs podcast. Join us three times a week as we deep dive into every aspect of pop culture. Whether it's dissecting the latest trends or just chatting about your favorite celebs, Comments by Celebs has you covered. We have new episodes out every week. Follow and listen to Comments by Celebs on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.